Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Astela Around the World. Today on the show, we have Bo Sile. Hi, Bo. Hi, how are you? Yeah, it's great to be here. Good. Good to have you here. Great to have you. So before we get started, I'd like to do a brief introduction. Bo is a partner and co-founder at Patamar, Southeast Asia's leading impact VC firm since 2010. With 10 years investing in the region, he has seen the evolution of the early stage VC ecosystem, as well as the rise of impact investing in backing visionary companies. He has a deep passion for helping founders develop leadership skills and maintain their mental health during the intense journey that accompanies the scaling of a startup. Academically, Bo holds a degree in psychology, a JD in law, and an MBA from Brigham Young University. At Patamar, they impact driven founders, launching sector-defining companies to serve the mass market of low and middle in customers through financial services or tech-enabled distribution and aggregation platforms. So this is an intro of Bo. We're excited for this conversation today. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. And this conversation started a while ago when we had an, a 101 uh, for Kaufman. And I was uh, very curious to, to dig a little bit more on your experience and uh, your background. So here we are. Um, thank you. And uh, I wanted to start uh, at the very beginning since uh, you uh, started uh your career and pursued education in the U.S. If you could tell us a little bit about your earlier experiences and uh, how was the decision to move to Singapore and uh, what interested you on Southeast Asia and Asia? That's a great question. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in the Seattle area, went to high school in Boise, Idaho, and then uh, spent a bunch of time. But uh, on the Western U.S., that's pretty much my whole growing up. I would say that, you know, I was exposed to traveling internationally just a little bit when I was a kid. I was actually on a baseball team that went to Russia when I was 11 years old. And we were part of trying to teach the Russian Olympic hopefuls how to play baseball a long time ago. But uh, that was kind of my first taste of doing international work, even though it wasn't work, it was just playing games. Then I spent a couple of years living in Japan in the late 90s, and then, you know, really didn't actually start traveling internationally again until I got done with law school and business school. And actually, I take that back. I went to school over in Hungary uh, at a school called Central European University, which was started by George Soros, if you're familiar with who that is, a big global financier who started a school really to help people from former Soviet countries and other war-torn countries and other developing economies to essentially build open societies. So interesting time. I'd launched an international human rights club at my law school. So always had just a lot of interest. And my mom even said she thought that's what I was going to do at some point. 
And I don't know why she ever thought that, but you know, she was actually quite prescient when it came to that sort of a thing. And luckily, I just happened to meet my business partner, Jeff, who was a long-term venture capitalist. You know, I wasn't even really familiar that much with what venture capital was kind of nut on a nuts and bolts basis when I met him. But he had had a storied career in building venture capital firms in the US and Europe. And when I met him, he had actually gone into what he considered to be the second part of his career, which was launching one of the first microfinance focused investment funds. It was a small $25 million fund before really hardly anybody had done that. And with my interest in human rights, my interest in you know, social justice, uh, and then also some reason I started to get really interested in venture. I was like, wow, I can do them all in one. And I didn't know that this job even existed and just randomly met him. So that's kind of how it all came together. And uh, at that point, his work was more focused on India. And they'd also done some work in Latin America. But we were spending most of our time actually over in India. And then all of a sudden we said, what's the next step? And we started to look at new geographies like Southeast Asia. And we started to see a lot of really interesting tech entrepreneurs, you know, large numbers of low-income people. Technology was just starting to change lives. Uh, and we said, what's going to be that next set of business models and entrepreneurs that we think that we could back when very few people were looking at it? It's funny, the similarities of uh, history that, because uh, when myself and my partner um, were considering going to venture, I was very anxious and I, I told him, well, I, I need to make money because I want to give back to our society. And then, well, I need to uh, provide um, to have a decent quality of life and so forth. And then afterwards, I will do something to social and, uh, and low income. And then we started to brainstorm and he was like, well, maybe you don't need to work on something you don't want to, to just make money and then go into what you were willing to. And that's how we, we also discussed the venture uh, business uh, before founding Astella. So it's uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and how different it is now where it's like the intersection between venture firms looking at the same exact types of companies that we consider to be like right in our sweet spot. 10 years ago, nobody was doing that. So it's amazing to watch how the markets have developed, how technology has developed all that. And, you know, it's literally in all the sectors that we cared about, education, agriculture, healthcare, financial services. So all just an inclusive bend. And since that's where most of the economy is in each of these countries that you're looking at and that we're looking at, it's like, wow, that really hits kind of low and middle income people who've just really never had people provide products and services to them. So it's an exciting time. Totally. I set some of the questions to go and, and dig into that as well. But I mean, it would be great to understand a little bit about your background further. So um, in terms of uh, your education, I mean, you had a, a degree in psychology. How was that decision and how it helps you today? Because it's a very intense relationship, our business. So I, I'm curious to understand, uh, first of all, how you decided to go for a psychology degree and then how it, uh, it helps you today. Yeah, I mean, I think psychology was just always fascinating to me, of, even more on the neuroscience side as well, is like what makes us tick as people. And... I just always had a keen interest in understanding why I was the way I was and why everybody in my family was the way that they were and why the world functioned the way that it did, because it's just made up of 
you know, when it comes to human society, it's made up of a bunch of people making a bunch of decisions. And yeah, it was a fascinating topic for me. Uh, I had some really great professors in university who I respected and enjoyed their courses. And I originally thought I was going to become a group therapist and then uh, made kind of a hard left and decided, well, actually, I think I'm going to go to law school. So I, I started making some decisions on things I should thought I should do as opposed to like what really, I just couldn't figure out, like I didn't, I wanted to, I enjoyed psychology work, but I just hadn't really landed on what it was that was really interesting to me and how that intersected with my other interests. So I just really didn't have an interest in being in a uh, more of a clinical environment or in a, just a straight and therapeutic environment. And it wasn't until then I got a couple of years into venture, I realized, oh my gosh, like how much of the work that we're doing is using soft power in the boardroom and trying to work with entrepreneurs who are working so hard and trying to build teams and build teams in the right way. And all of a sudden, it, it felt like we were just having conversations around how we help people be healthy from a mental standpoint. And so I would say that probably out of all of the work, there's two things that I really love. One of them is I am, I love dreaming about the future and thinking about what are going to be the next business models and the next technologies that create sector defining businesses and change economies and change the way that societies function. But then the other part of it is working with founders day in and day out. That's probably the most interesting thing to me is helping them feel very supported and helping them grow. And they're doing all the hard work. And uh, if I can just ask them some pointed questions and be there with them on the journey, that's really what powers me every day. It was, um, I was very impressed and was mind blowing. One of the Kaufman uh, models that uh, they distributed a, a text from a book that uh, mentions or describes how the entrepreneurs in the US are kind of a hypomaniac because they're so intense. And it was, uh, it was incredible to see how the, the similarities and, and how it, it can be very, very tough the, the entire journey. So it's a, uh, when I saw that you were a psychologist, I was like, oh my God, this might help a lot. Uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that by having an undergraduate degree in psychology, I really knew what I was doing, right? I'm pretty sure I, it was like more dangerous than anything. But I think just always that constant interest and really paying attention to it has been helpful along the path and helped me more seek, you know, to understand what's going on as opposed to coming in and trying to tell people what to do. Yeah. You know, they know their businesses so much better than I do. They know their team so much better than I ever would. It's, it's more on the more on the side of just trying to figure out how you can help out. Totally. Yeah, very interesting. I wonder if your psychology background and this same perspective will help us with the next question because we're really curious into. We just learned how your relationship with Asia started, and we would like to know. How did you adapt to the cultural barriers? And if, the, if you see any differences between the Asian and the American entrepreneurs. So from a psychological and cultural perspective, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, it's always not. Every time you go in and you think you know what the answer is when you're going in, especially into a no culture, you know, just recognizing you're the visitor there and you're probably not the smartest guy in the room. Now, sometimes that allows you to ask questions that people want to ask or just haven't thought of because they're so in their own culture that it's illuminating and helps with the growth path of a company uh, and the growth path of an entrepreneur and as they build their teams. The one thing I would say is, am I an expert in 
any of these cultures or say that I clearly understand them. I grew up in the US. I don't even understand US culture that clearly, right? So like to say that I, it's just trying to navigate it. And as you mentioned, just keeping an open mind and really tapping into people who are building things and, and just being a constant learner is what's been important for us, especially as we're building new types of companies and new business models that have just never been built before. And uh, talking about South and Southeast Asia, you once mentioned that accounts for one third of the world's population and uh, it receive only 7% of uh, global venture capital investment. So, and the population grow two times uh, more than the, in the advanced economy. So how does innovation work in this kind of uh, environment? And how do you see the, the entire region evolving and receiving or not more capital? And how do you compare to other regions as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one thing is, is the growth of kind of the, the, the amount of venture money going into South and Southeast Asia has probably changed quite a bit since we put those statistics together, especially over the last two years. So I think that people are seeking out growth opportunities. The spread of the concept of venture and tech uh, platforms is very well known. We are seeing entrepreneurs either start their own tech companies or return back to their home countries after working in the US, Europe, or some other markets at an unprecedented rate. You know, I, I think uh, I'm seeing this in, you know, just floods of entrepreneurs starting companies in Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines. I was spending some time in Pakistan in late 2019, early 2020, and there was hardly any venture money going into Pakistan at the time. And that's changed dramatically over the last year and a half. I think that one of the reasons why we started investing into those markets is we felt like there's large numbers of people from our impact perspective, it was large numbers of low income people, high density of population, meaning you could build more scalable models in a closer geographic basis, especially as a lot of technology companies have gone from being just pure software companies to almost what I would call fidgetal, like where physical meets digital, becoming the new industrial companies of the future that are powered by technology. I think in the past, I was, I can't remember who I was listening to say this, but you know, in the past it was technology companies were essentially selling software and services to industrial countries or companies. And now technology companies are becoming the industrial companies of the future. So it's just all changing very fast as, as economies modernize, uh, digitize, And that leapfrogging is happening because mobile technology has gotten so inexpensive. Interesting. Now we'd love to learn a little bit more about Padamar. So we know that you focus on Asia's mass market, right? We'd love to learn a little bit about the thesis around social impact. You know, we are an impact-driven VC firm and from the very beginning. It's not something that we just started doing a couple of years ago, uh, like from day one. And this goes back to We were born out of an organization called Unitas, which was originally focused on microfinance. And then Patamar became kind of, you know, a new entity in the Unitas family. We were just saying, how do we focus on entrepreneurs that are trying to improve the lives of low and middle income people? And at the beginning, it was really 100% focused on how do we improve the lives of low income people and help them make more money? As we've seen the markets develop, we realized that there's very few technology platforms that can be built only for low-income people. Low-income people are just as aspirational. They just, I'm not going to speak for all low-income people, obviously, because I'm, but what we've seen is these patterns of people just looking for opportunity, not looking for handouts. They're just saying, hey, 
I just need opportunity. Give me the tools and the resources that I need to make this happen. I'm a smart person. I just want to be able to figure out how to support my family and build a strong community around me. So that was always our perspective is just thinking about how we provide opportunities and tools for people as people not only become the middle class, but we want to provide those opportunities that grow with them. But with that said, oftentimes we've found that if you're in a income constrained environment, you're probably going to be less likely to adopt new technologies and tools. So it's oftentimes easier, in our opinion, to start by investing in companies that have the dual mandate of focusing on middle and low income people, maybe sometimes even a little bit heavier on the middle income side as a starting point with the idea that then as economies of scale occur, but, but you have to be really careful of making sure that you're backing entrepreneurs that are dedicated to that and have a long-term vision and are not just trying to find an easy place to get money because they can just say, oh yeah, we want to serve low-income people too. So it's a little bit of a finesse. That, that's really how we started. And we look at saying, how do we just provide economic opportunities for low-income folks, small and medium-sized businesses? So we do a lot in SME enablement. We do quite a bit in financial inclusion. We've done some ed tech investments, uh, some digital health investments. But oftentimes it's trying to help, you know, like small, we have a company called M Clinica. It's built out the largest uh, pharmacy network in Southeast Asia. And their idea is that small pharmacists actually understand their patients better than anyone else. And the patients trust them more than going to a big box pharmacy. It's like there's this degree and this really strong relationship of trust that exists. So how do we just help those small pharmacies compete at scale? And that's kind of the thesis that we have. How do we help small shopkeepers? How do we help low-income folks actually sell things in their own community and keep that money and keep that product in the community and share the upside with them. That's really been our pathway over the last 10 years. And both does the idea of starting like a middle income population or not focusing on the low income first because of the how easy it is to adopt technology by middle classes, was ever a conflict for you or did you ever had to explain your investors that the idea was just a, a starting point and then moving to increase the the adoption by digital tools uh, by the low-income population or uh, people generally understand that as a strategy, normal strategy of those businesses? Pretty recent. So it's been within the last couple of years. It's actually probably been a little bit more challenging for our team as opposed to our investors to get comfortable with it. Because here was a group of people who'd been so, so dedicated to looking at the world through a lens of we really need to focus on low-income people like 100% and getting us as a team. And I'm actually probably the one that had the biggest challenge with it on our team. Everybody had degrees of it, but it was just something that I continued to get hung up on. And, you know, to be quite honest, like it's a work in progress and we're trying to, you know, still figure out how these models could really scale to go lower, like on education. Oftentimes people want to pay a higher price point because they perceive that as quality. And if it doesn't cost a lot, they don't want to pay for it. So then if you're going after serving low-income populations, unless you can show that kind of people in upper rings of society also believe in the product, you probably get low take-up take rates from people because they're saying, hey, this is my kid's future or this is my future. I'm not going to skimp on this or I don't want inferior products, right? So in every business model is a little bit different. 
but I think that people who've been in the impact space, investors who are investors in our fund or other venture firms, you know, I think we've all seen this like become a very big reality. The question is, how do you just back the types of entrepreneurs? And then how do you build the right shareholder base that then allows the entrepreneur to continue to maximize impact over the long term? So it's like once we get to scale, now we've got a much bigger distribution platform. Economies of scale have really kicked in. It's marginal costs for us to actually offer this to a lower income group. We can cut the price a little bit because we're at scale, but we're going to gain so many more customers. We haven't had any investments where we just haven't been touching low income folks at all. It's just been more, sometimes there's been heavier weighting because the initial customer base tends to be people who are willing to take the risk on buying it because they have more disposable income and they that sometimes is a little heavier weighted towards middle income communities. And people sometimes have the impression that impact investment is has to be more patient because uh, to arrive at product market fit for the low incomes is sometimes tougher than other parts of the population because you, you have to bridge the gap for um, digital adoption and this kind of things. Do you agree? Do you see this as uh, impact investors really needing to have more patience at the beginning or you have different views on that? I mean, I would say I agree and disagree. It just depends on the situation. I think anytime there's a potentially a brand new business model that's never been built, oftentimes you're in kind of an R&D, like research and development setting. So I would say some of the investments we made really early on, like the cost of mobile hadn't dropped enough in data. And we, we just didn't know exactly when the time frame was, when the inflection point would take off. And, you know, everybody always likes to look back and retrospect and say, oh, you know, we nailed it. We, we knew exactly when that was going to happen. And it's a little bit challenging to, you don't know when the telcos are going to cut their rates because they want more customers. You don't know when handsets are really going to get cheap enough. We don't know when people are going to be able to distribute them out to far-flung areas. So I think a little bit, the answer can be yes in a situation where it's a brand new business model, never been proven. You're waiting on some changes in the macro economy to change. So you, you can make those investments which need to be longer term and, and more patient. But then let's say you've seen what I call a playbook deal in another market and somebody's figured it out. Maybe they took two to three years to figure out that business model, but then you said, hey, we're going to replicate that in Brazil, right? And now that there's a playbook and at least like some rules, like, no, it shouldn't take that long. <laughs> it's like, it's it, if it takes that long, you're not either executing or you're not thinking very smart about your strategy. And we've seen this happen quite a bit in Southeast Asia. It's like, we've seen models that have been built and scaled in India and took a long time. And then they hit this inflection point because some changes happened in the market, like in agriculture technology, like agriculture tech platforms, I should say, connecting farmers with markets. I've been looking at those companies for 10 years and I have good friends who've invested and we've invested in companies that took a really long time to build, but it was actually more of market dynamics and technology dynamics and adoption curves as opposed to like whether the thesis was right. So you just, the timing wasn't right. It wasn't the design or the smarts of the entrepreneur. It was just some other enabling factors hadn't kicked in. So you get smarter sometimes. So if I would have recognized all of those different things and been able to perfectly predict them, no, it wouldn't have taken longer. But we didn't perfectly predict them, so it took longer. Yeah, I think the answer is yes and no. 
But if we're going to back a company that's never done it before, like a new type of a product or service or, you know, way of distributing products in Indonesia, and there's been never one of those built in any other emerging market, maybe it takes a little bit longer. That's fair. So talking a little bit more about your fund, we know that Patamar shows true commitment to gender lens investing from the partnership with investing in women as an initiative of the Australian government to fostering growth of women-owned SMEs in Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Could you tell us a little bit more about this initiative? Yeah, I mean, this was really more of a personal relationship that I had with some of the leaders in promoting gender lens investing and what that actually was. I mean, to be quite honest with you, and I first talked with my friend, Joy Anderson, who who started the Criterion Institute, and she was sharing with me just the concept of investing with a gender lens, which, by the way, does not mean only investing in female entrepreneurs or only companies that focus on serving women and girls. Even though we do a lot of that work, gender lens investing is really more along the lines of how do you just incorporate a gender lens into valuing opportunities that you invest into? to make companies stronger, to think about how you better serve a customer base, to think about what types of products and services are missing in the market. You know, how many times have we heard that an entrepreneur comes in and pitch a venture firm and it's a company focused on women's health and then all of a sudden somebody says, well, that's a niche market. And you're going, that's a niche market. It's like 50% of the world's population. How could that exactly. be a niche market? So we're so minority that we represent <laughs> half of the population. It's amazing how people Actually, say more that. than half, right? Like more than half of the world's population in most places. You know, yeah. I, I think it's really more about how do you incorporate a gender lens. Now, with the Investing in Women program that we did with the Australian government, they were incredibly strong partners for us. We had been what my friend Joy said was accidental gender lens investors, where we as a firm had been backing companies either started by female founders just because we thought they you know, had the right experience and the right chops and they understood the problem. Or we'd backed a lot of microfinance institutions where the primary customers were low-income women just in the way that the models had been built. So we as a firm had just been very comfortable and looked at those things as core criteria and how we evaluated opportunities. Now, what we did with the Investing in Women program is that we developed a very comprehensive plan towards thinking about how our firm operates, how we evaluate investment opportunities, how we negotiate with entrepreneurs, how we sit on boards, how do we promote equitable hiring and employment practices. So it turned into a much more comprehensive approach as opposed to, oh yeah, you know, we're totally comfortable backing female entrepreneurs or companies that serve women and girls. It, it grew into something much bigger than that. And one of the reasons why that was incredibly important for us is impact really baked into our DNA and uh, everything that we do. We always try and think about how can we continue to have the most impact while still remaining true to what we purport to, which is build game changing companies and help entrepreneurs do that and invest wisely on behalf of the limited partners who invest in our funds. So it's always just a core part of our DNA to think about how we can get better at driving more impact and taking a leadership role in promoting something you know as important as gender lens investing and taking that role in Southeast Asia is, I believe, the first venture firm to really encapsulate that and bring that in-house. What are your hypotheses for such a low number of uh, 
startups that are created and founded by women. I have some hypotheses, but none of them is broad enough to answer all the questions. So I was uh, curious to understand if you have something that uh, I never thought about uh, on this front. I mean, why we don't have at least a more mixed teams of founders? Any views on or thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's highly culturally specific, to be quite honest. And it ranges from who's controlling capital to the types of the way educational systems are structured and where men and women tend to get pushed in their educational journeys. And then we've seen it affect like at what age people tend to get married and start families and, you know, how does society view the role of fathers and mothers in each of those societies. And so I think it's really culturally and societal uh, specific from a society basis, but I, I think it's changing. We're seeing it change. One of the things that I think is great about venture and emerging markets, and now granted, I'm not going to say every venture fund manager is like this, but I would say that most people going into venture and emerging markets are kind of looking to break the mold a little bit. Now, now that it's becoming more of a pure, uh, like here's where the biggest economic opportunities are. I think it's changing different again, but the first crop of venture fund managers were kind of the pioneers doing something that nobody believed in, right? Like who was going to start a venture firm in Brazil in 2012, right? When everybody said, oh, there's no good tech companies here. And there's nobody really looking to invest in tech companies in Brazil or in Indonesia or in... So it's like the people were true believers who were trying to view a different world. And so I, I tend to find that most of that, that age of, entre of venture fund managers actually were just way more open to everything. And a lot of them were educated in ways which were trying to just build the best companies. And so we've never had problems of like explaining this concept or it's just oftentimes people don't have the lens. They just don't think about it. Some other markets where venture has been much more embedded for a longer period of time, you tend to have kind of the old boys networks and all these other things that are much more entrenched in the way that the ecosystems are built. But I think that still the challenges on STEM education and who gets to take STEM education has an effect on these things. And it's so multifaceted, but the thing that I'm even though I wish it was all different and it was 100% parity right now, the thing that I feel is even though it's not moving as fast as I, I want it to from an equitable perspective, I feel like we're still moving in the right direction. And then at a certain point, hopefully we hit this just really accelerated inflection point as people continue to make this a priority. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, this issue of the STEM careers is something that is really important, even for us, like most of the classes in engineering are 70% men and 30% and women in Brazil still. So it is an issue for sure. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you source your deals and how you organize your agenda in your days uh, by having having links to uh, several different countries like uh, India, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore. How is your, your daily life considering all those geographies and regions? I think it's much different now than it was 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> 10 years ago, I used to just go and camp out in Jakarta or go for a couple of weeks to Ho Chi Minh City or go for a week or 10 days to Manila and pass through Singapore because most of the investments we do actually are not based in Singapore. Uh, they may be legally domiciled there, but most of them are operating in Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, and India. 
So it used to be, I was just going around and like, there's this term that I like to use. It's called like being a bird dog. It's like, you're just like shaking the bushes and you're going around and hoping some birds fly out and it's, and hopefully those birds are, you know, the best entrepreneurs that you can find. And then you meet with people and they refer you to people. So it's kind of a lot of that holds true when it comes to meeting with people and getting referrals and getting referrals from entrepreneurs that you've invested into. And so there's some of those old networks of just people who've been involved in it for a long time. And since I've been involved in it a long time, you just, you share opportunities that you think well fit for each other. But most of our investment opportunities today, we have great teams on the ground in each of our markets who are part of the local ecosystem. They're Indonesian, they're Vietnamese, you know, it's, they, you know, they know the right people and it's become a much more local game. So somebody like me, I'm not the best person on deal flow anymore, unless it comes from other venture fund managers. I know the entrepreneurs that we've invested into, or, you know, somebody got to know me somewhere and then just reaches out and says, Hey, I've got an interesting entrepreneur you should talk with. But most of what we do is in country teams, know the markets. Well, they've been there for their whole lives. They're not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> this is their passion in life and uh, they bring most of the opportunities uh, to us as a firm. And uh, is competition becoming tougher? I mean, in terms of uh, winning deals, we are seeing a lot of uh, new fund managers coming to Brazil, for example, like SoftBank is increasing um, uh, exposure to the country significantly, not only on the late stage, but they have just uh, launched a fund for seed and growth. How is that? What are the players and the differences of uh, fund managers and brands throughout uh, this 10-year period that you're working on the region? Yeah, I mean, I think just like in e-markets, there's more firms there. There's also more entrepreneurs as well. So is it more competitive? Yes. Is there more opportunity? Yes. It really comes down to how you build your own networks and how you know how much hard work you're willing to do. So in the past, I would say the difference was when I first started investing in Indonesia, I think I knew like three people who were willing to do a venture capital type deal. Um, this is 2010, right? Now there's, you know, Indonesia only firms, there's great regional firms. The whole ecosystem has grown so significantly and it, it's very exciting. Has competition increased? Yes. Has opportunity increased and in a much bigger set of uh, opportunities? Yes. And so now when you knew every single entrepreneur trying to start an early stage company nearly, like you don't know that anymore right? <laughs> you don't know every company anymore. So that's what's different. I mean, I think when we first started going to Indonesia, it was like you kind of knew 80% of the people doing things like fast. It's not like that anymore. So I think that some of the bigger changes too, is you're starting to see firms invest all the way up and down the stage. That's different, right? I mean, it used to be seed stage firms did seed stage deals. Then you had some series A firms. And then you have kind of a gap. There weren't that many growth stage firms. Like, so up until maybe three, four years ago, the biggest challenge was not at the seed and series A level. It was who's going to write the series B and the series C check. Now you've seen big global firms start to actually come down and do these deals globally uh, in other types of companies they've invested into in other markets. So now you've actually got a ton of growth capital. And now you're starting to see people do kind of the entire thing and starting to make a lot more bets at the early stage level, almost like options into companies. Let's invest 200,000 bucks into this company and just make sure that we got a seat at the table to write the A. So yeah, it's all changing pretty fast. And I think that, you know, a year from now, Laura, we're probably going to be having a conversation of how it's changed in the last year. Yeah. And totally. uh, ever evolving, right? 
Totally. Yeah. So speaking about that, people who invest across the globe, they see a lot of similarities between Southeast Asia and LATAM. Mm. Do you have a view of how the two ecosystems can be compared? I will say that of all the places in the world that I don't know very well, it's probably Latin America. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've never been south of Mexico City, so I I don't really know what to say. Um, You know, I've had conversations with people, you guys, you know, some other people, but I don't know the markets that well. I think that some of the similar things are when it comes to kind of the path of economic development tend to be pretty similar. You know, Southeast Asia, also every country, one of the ways it may be a little bit different is you've got people kind of separated by oceans a lot and you have different cultures, but you have different languages and you have different religions and you have different economic systems. Like Vietnam is not at all like doing business in Indonesia, not at all. Right. And the Philippines is very different than Indonesia. You know, it's like Indonesia is 275 million people. It's the biggest market, very strong from like a strong ties with Singapore for a long time. And so like kind of the capital market system functions a little bit more efficiently there. But it's a Muslim nation, which has a whole different set of cultural dynamics that you wouldn't find in a primary Catholic nation like the Philippines that has really close ties with the United States and or Vietnam, which was is a socialist country and had a completely different economic system and the way that the free market functions. So all these markets are just so different. And I'm not sure if it's the same in LATAM. I my guess is it's, you know, at least it's all contiguous from a landmass perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I know Portuguese and Spanish are not the same language, but at least my friends that speaks Portuguese always say, well, I can understand people who speak Spanish. I may not be able to speak perfect Spanish and vice versa. And then a little bit, obviously, significant cultural differences between each country, but then also significant cultural differences within the country as well, depending on certain areas. You know, I think it's more from a probably the youth of the population, the cost curve for technology adoption, the basic needs for financial services, healthcare, education. So I think a lot of those things are very similar, but I would say that I wouldn't see a company from Southeast Asia naturally expanding into Brazil, you know, because it's going to be a very different user experience, a very different set of customer preferences, the channels that you reach people, you know. No, you're totally right. I mean, I also don't have the knowledge on your uh, markets. And, but what I think are similar is the way how population grow and how economic development help those uh, low income to move uh, upwards on the pyramid. This was a, a reality before the pandemics. Now seeing a lot of uh, interesting trends moving a bit backwards, but it's still how the economy helps and how technology helps those people to move upwards is, is something that might be similar. But indeed, I mean, in terms of how people consume, how they behave, it's totally different. So it's not obvious that the regions might, one region might be an expansion opportunity to the other. Not at all. I totally agree. All right, we're moving um, to the end of our conversation and we love to have some philosophical questions in terms of uh, how people see the, the future and the challenges that humanity have in, on Earth. So it's incredible because most of the VCs have an optimistic view on, uh, about the future and we have some interesting uh, surprises and views when we talk about those questions. So it would be great to understand how is your uh, view of uh, our future life and uh, how 
optimistic you are about uh, our sustainable issues here in Earth. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm optimistic in general with some pretty uh, significant caveats. I think technology is an enabler. And I think if used properly and used well, obviously can create a lot of uplift. We've seen it in all of our markets. We've seen it in the history of the world. But I do think that the one thing to be careful of is I think fund managers, investors, entrepreneurs, as we think about building the companies of the future, let's not just build the technologies of the future, but let's figure out what are the ways that companies can be built to create the most resilient and really powerful opportunities for for sustainable growth that's inclusive. And the reason why I say this is the venture community is best practices were really born out of what we've seen happen in the U.S. for a long time. And kind of game-changing technology companies were originally built in the U.S. And now China is just really doing incredibly well. And the types of companies being built in India and Brazil and you know all these major economies are fantastic. If we're not careful, though, and we try and just replicate the best practices that have been done in markets where it's actually fostered more income inequality or less opportunity for people, that's where I think we as investors, shareholders, board members, the founders of companies, the teams, really deciding, you know, how do we build these companies to really drive value for society, for our customers, but then also in the long term, building these businesses that can really thrive, right? I mean, I think back to, it's not a perfect analogy, but when Henry Ford started paying his workers more money, they actually became the customers of his car, which created a whole new market. You had more customers who could afford it, right? Now, it didn't go off without a hitch. And I'm not saying that it was just like such a perfect utopian thing for a lot of reasons. But I do think that policy is going to be critical. I think that just decisions that are made about how small producers are treated, how small taxi drivers or pharmacists, like we just go in and start obliterating sections of the economy and don't provide opportunities for people, we could see a lot of unrest, which then would hurt our investments in the long term as well. And it's not like the economic interest of the investments is the most important thing, but it's a natural byproduct if we're not thinking out ahead of this. And so the best practices that have been done in not how you execute and build companies, but the economic models and how much margins you take or this or that. That's where I think that we need to be careful of like, what are the benchmarks and expectations for a healthy return or a really good return on building a game-changing company? And do we actually build a better business for the long term? And I think that's sometimes the artificial exit timeframe around venture creates some of those pressures. And you can understand why people make the decisions that they make. That's where I think that by the way that the technology and innovation ecosystems are funded, we just have to be very, very careful in the decisions that are made. And you can understand why people make all of those decisions, but like how to maybe think a little bit more long-term is really gonna be the next thing that we deal with. And by the way, I'm a free markets guy. I believe that capitalism is the best imperfect system that we have so far. I think it's going to evolve. I mean, it's interesting to watch what's going on in China, right? Like they're almost resetting the way that the innovation and technology ecosystems function when it comes to the providing certain types of products and services, because they're making decisions and whether right or wrong, they're trying to make decisions to say, 
you know, how are these things going to help or hurt society in the long term? And uh, China is in a unique position because they're they have such a centralized, strong rule of law and government. But in some of these other markets, I'm not sure that you once the ship starts going down, you know, you can't actually. A lot of countries could never change that sort of thing. That's what I'm most interested to watch: is how do we invest responsibly and and how do we partner up with founders and later stage investors to try and just build the best companies and do it the most responsible and inclusive ways. Totally, yeah. This is what motivates,、uh, I think, most of our counterparts all over the world. So, and in terms of opportunities, what are the, the issues or problems that、uh, you would expect、uh, innovators to address over the next、uh, few years? I mean, how do you see evolution and and the problems that we are about to solve? I mean, if you could say, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that、um, building efficient distribution systems is probably one of the biggest things that. People tackle and really solve. I'm seeing logistics companies are getting much, much better. The use of technology to figure out how you serve not just small portions of society, how you get rid of spoilage and wastage and supply chains. I think a lot of these efficiency drivers of building kind of the new tech-powered, more efficient, you know, big businesses of the past and kind of modernizing them is one where we're going to just continue to see a lot of effort. And then I think that.、Uh, Financial services is obviously going to continue to be one of these things which changes dramatically, and something I'm still trying to wrap my head around when it comes to the use of crypto and blockchain and you know decentralized finance to try and really help drive down costs、uh, and inefficiencies in the financial system and keep more money in the pockets of people to actually you know invest in things as opposed to just losing it on transactions. So, what one of the other things I think will be Really cool, and I continue to look for our platforms that are trying to improve the lives of migrant workers around the world.、Uh, you know, they pay a ton of money to get jobs. They pay a ton of money to send money home to their family. I mean, they're just like every step in their journey. They're kind of—I don't want to say taken advantage of, but they're not in a power-up situation. Typically, low-income people who are migrant workers are the only people in the world who pay to get a job. Why does that make sense? Why should it cost? Why should there be layers upon layers of fees when it comes to remittances? Those are going to get driven down to very low costs, if not near zero, and then providing products and services to this huge community of people. Especially as I think we're going to see economic migration only increase、uh, across all income bands,、uh, unless we move into a purely nationalistic, you know, everybody closes their borders type of a thing, <laughs> which we've been somewhat experiencing during COVID, but. I think that some of these basic needs are going to be the things that get met with technology, and then there'll be the moonshot things, which I am not smart enough to, you know, predict. Yeah, we'll wait for those to be near us in some way. <laughs> the moonshots, totally. Bo, so this was really interesting conversation. So before we go on our day here in Brazil and you wrap up your day there in Singapore, we usually end with a final icebreaker. Just to hear something that you're currently excited about and something that you're currently scaring you. I've been seeing a lot of companies trying to figure out how they solve these problems for migrant workers, and I'm very excited by the caliber of people, and the talent, and the smarts of people thinking through this. And I'm also really excited about new types of tech companies that are really trying to figure out distribution out to low-income communities. Because one of the things that's very clear to me is. 
we all talk about how mobile money and neobanks and everything are solving problems, but we're still dealing with such a small portion of society. And I, I'm seeing some amazing entrepreneurs think through how they take it to the next level. So those are the things that I'm excited about. What am I scared about? I'm scared about the flood of money and chasing yields and chasing high returns. And everybody has a new anchoring point for what that looks like. Not because I'm scared of people making a lot of money. It's more, I'm scared that essentially companies are built in a way which is not sustainable for the long term. And then we're going to have a really challenging time from like a societal stability perspective in different countries. And we've seen this in the US. Like if you would have asked me, you know, 10 years ago, if we would have seen like the type of divides that have happened in the US. And I think a lot of it's driven by economic inequality. And I think that in more middle and low income countries, if we don't use technology in a smart way to create inclusive economic growth, I think that those markets are actually more prone to a lot of unrest. So that's that's the thing that I that takes up a lot of my thoughts. And I, you know, I try and think about like how you do this better. And so I, I just kind of try and bury my my head into my companies and say, how do we just provide better opportunities for people? And how do we use this platform to maximize the impact that we have? Because if we build a sector defining business that almost resets the rules of how economies function, you know, we've got kind of one shot at this in like once you establish the the dominant N of one type company in e-commerce or financial services in a market, it's very hard to unseat them. And so you've got years and years where a new normal has been established and hopefully it's an inclusive new normal. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Bo, for being here with us. It was a very interesting conversation. I was looking forward to that because we had this uh, that 101 of half an hour and uh, we now had uh, more opportunities to exchange ideas. So. Looking forward to having some touch points in the future and see how you're doing and uh, see how we are performing in terms of uh, having a more inclusive world and maybe how the two regions will be closer in the future. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's been fantastic.